welcome to the Legit Lady Podcast, where we feature women who are nailing it in life. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Legit Lady Podcast. This is your host, Julie Fetterman, and this is where we're creating a platform for impressive women to inspire the world. Such a great mission and vision, and it just gets me sparked up every single time I do this intro. It's the bomb. So much like our other episodes, I do want to spend a couple minutes checking out our reviews. And again, thank you so much to everyone who's taking time to actually write these reviews and putting in a lot of thought into most of them, which is fantastic. So please, if you haven't already done so, take a couple minutes, write a quick review on Stitcher, on iTunes, on Facebook, on anywhere else. And uh, it really does help me. So I, I appreciate it. This is the best way for you to just give me a thumbs up and say, keep doing what you're doing, Julie which is the best. Renu T says, totally inspiring. What a great premise for this podcast. There are so many phenomenal, strong, and talented women doing such great things, but we rarely hear about them or from them. So very inspirational to hear the stories, challenges, and successes of these women. Everyone has a unique story to tell, and each story is fascinating. I look forward to listening to each new podcast as it comes out. Aw. I think that really nicely sums up why I decided to do this in the first place in a way much better than I could. So thank you, Renu. That's great. And that is true. I mean, a lot of podcasts that do exist, they either don't focus on women or it's simply about, say, famous women only. And famous women are certainly great and we're going to have them on here, I'm sure. But I want to hear from people who are just so knowledgeable about that one particular thing. They live that one thing and they can just share that more broadly. And I'll read Suzanne. It says, great podcast. Dear Julie, legit lady, I've long admired your grace and creativity on the dance floor and brightness and lightness in a social environment. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> it is truly terrific to have this glimpse into this, this work that you're doing. What a wonderful format you've created to shine the light on some really legit ladies. Your interviewing style is so refreshing, and it allows your guests to feel comfortable to explore your questions in a thoughtful and fun way. I've so enjoyed listening and wish you great success as you explore your passion to communicate it in a meaningful and lovely way. All the best, Suzanne. Thank you, Suzanne. You're the bomb. Ah, so sweet. Oh, I love these. What a wonderful, wonderful way to kick off a podcast. This week's article that caught my attention is a little bit different, kind of <laughs> gives me uh, <laughs> mixed feelings. And the headline is, researchers built a smart dress to show how often women are groped at clubs. Thus, the mixed feelings, right? Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, many of us who are listening, we've all been there. We're at a bar, we're at a club, we're even at a restaurant or just some place with a whole bunch of people. Maybe we're in transit just trying to get to our job. And people feel like it's okay or acceptable just to, you know, make physical contact with you. <laughs> um so I'm going to just read this article and, and we'll continue on after. Uh, for a campaign on behalf of beverage company Schweppes, advertising agency Oligly, 
uh, created a touch-sensitive dress that tracked how often and with what degree of intensity women in Brazil were groped on the average night out. Oh, boy. The goal was to elevate the issue to men who expressed in preliminary interviews that harassment was not a major issue for club-going women. Well, duh, if you're interviewing men, what they think about women's experiences in a club and you're not <laughs> going to be clueless. Um, no offense to my men who are on here and listening. You guys are great, I'm sure, but yeah. <laughs> for the project titled The Dress for Respect, researchers built a dress embedded with sensor technology that tracked touch and pressure. The information that was then relayed to a visual system so that researchers could essentially track harassment in real time. Jeez, I wonder if they actually had someone like jump out <laughs> behind a wall saying like, hey, <laughs> don't do that. Uh, I digress. To test the dress, researchers sent three women to the party wearing it. Throughout the night, we see a heat map version of it steadily lighting up in areas where the women were being grabbed, mostly the lower back, backside, aka butt, and arms. The visual is imposed over a footage of the women brushing off the men and asking not to be touched. Well, at least they asked to not be touched afterwards. Uh, in just under four hours, the women are touched a combined 157 times. Later, men from the party are brought in to review the experiment. For the most part, they express shock and surprise at the now bruised image of the dress. And so this was on uh, QZ.com. Uh, there's actually a video that allows you to see this visually, which is pretty interesting. But quite frankly, this is, this is annoying. And I know we've been taught to sometimes not speak up when things happen to you. And hopefully in this day and age, we're starting to learn that that is BS. If someone is touching you and do not, you do not wish to be touched by that person, please speak up. But as people in general, just interacting, whether you're a man, a woman, whatever, it is never okay to touch someone who you do not know or even someone you do know who might not be interested in being touched by you. So do not touch someone unless they say you can touch them. <laughs> or maybe ask first if you're not sure. This seems so straightforward and so simple, but apparently this is not. And although the intention of it might not be super sketchy or might not be malicious, this is something that you should be a little bit more aware of. And if you catch your friends doing this too on a regular basis, this is your opportunity to actually say something. So especially if you're a dude who's listening or even if you're a lady and you're hanging out with other ladies and maybe, again, you also are very touchy-feely with people, just keep this in mind and maybe bring it up because this is something that a lot of people feel really uncomfortable about and unfortunately don't speak up about. And this is how things get really sketchy and not so great. So with that, this week's guest, I am so proud to be related to this woman. <laughs> she is my great aunt and she's actually been a sexual health educator since 1982. And I didn't realize 
how badass and how amazing this woman was until me coming into adulthood and, and feeling less <laughs> squirmy about the idea of learning about sexual health and all that good stuff. Um, she actually came into my middle school and I was certainly mortified at that age, having a great aunt, so a person that you know coming and educating about sex, right? But she is a rock star. She's all over the media. She writes blog posts. She's done tons of interviews. She's so outspoken, so engaged in politics, and someone I hope to be when I am her wonderful age and I look up to. Please give it up for Liba Spring. I was mortified. <laughs> I'll never forget that moment. Wow. Which school yeah. was it? It was Winona. You were at Winona? Yeah. Why don't I have a memory of that? That's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, you've probably seen your fair share of many schools, so. Yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, I, I, I should have tucked that one away. Oh my gosh, I mortified my great niece. Okay. No, no, oh, no, goodness. not at all. No, I was, I was, I, I suffered in silence. <laughs> Well, I certainly mortified my own children, which was a real pleasure, actually. Oh, good. That was good. Amazing. Amazing, as a good mother should. Cool. So with that, are we ready to rock and roll? Cool. All right. Well, Leva, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, as we discussed, we're going to get to know you through at least 10 main questions and plenty of great conversation throughout. So, yeah. Are you excited to be here? Yeah, I'm pumped. Yay! Amazing. So we're going to just dive right in to question one. And question one is, what advice would you give to your teenage self? I was thinking about how thin-skinned teenagers are. And if there was any way that I could have lived through those years without catastrophizing everything, uh, that, would, that would have been a good thing. So mm -hmm. I was thinking, well, you know, teach my teenage self to meditate. That might help. <laughs> because even to this day, I, I have a friend who's been dealing with cancer for at least 10 years. And she says, don't sweat the small stuff. And I think, yeah, whenever something arises, and it's, you know, if you put it into perspective, it's not that big a deal. Mm -hmm. so, so that would be one big thing I would tell my teenage self. And the other thing, too, is uh, as a woman, especially as a teenager, you're so aware of your body. Mm -hmm. And if I could have said to my teenage self, you know, could you just relax about this for a bit, you know, and not think about it and don't think about how you have to please and how you have to look and how you end up comparing yourself to everybody else. I mean, it would be really a good thing if you could just like forget that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I would also tell my teenage self, you know what? You didn't get a lot of information about human sexuality at home, so go find it. Mm -hmm. Find out what how the body works. Find out what consent means, you know, how you say yes and how you say no. Right. And you've been a sexual health educator for over three decades, Yes. right? And you brought up a couple of interesting points there. So talking about body image, talking about consent, um, especially consent, this is a really very hot topic now more than ever, and it should have been one before, but thinking about consent, how should we educate our youth about that type of concept 
because it's something that can feel very scary, especially as parents and even other educators. Well, I'm glad you mentioned parents because parents are the first sex educators of their own children. And I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of workshops I've led for parents and, and, uh, and teachers and uh, early childhood educators about raising sexually healthy children. Mm -hmm. These conversations about consent have to start from a very early age. I remember very distinctly uh, a situation at home uh, where I was in the kitchen, probably, <laughs> and I heard my kids in the living room. Uh, I have a boy and a girl. Um, and I heard my daughter complaining, get off of me, get off of me. And I went into the living room to see what was going on. And he had her pinned down on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, honey, if you want him to get off, you have to tell him in a way that he's going to understand. You have to say, get off of me. And you have to mean it. Mm -hmm. And I said to my son, and when you hear somebody say, get off of me, you get off. Mm -hmm. So it was a parenting thing that mm -hmm. I did to begin the conversation about consent. Mm -hmm. That's really important. And, you know, many, I would say many parents, and I reflecting back to my own childhood as well, to those rough and tumble times, and you're just fighting and stuff like that. And it's usually like, a, oh, this is just part of it. And so it seems like parents should really take a more active role in these conversations. And what about educators? How can they play a more active role in discussing consent? And if not that, how do you think about consent? Under the revised curriculum, uh, consent was included primarily because of uh, two grade eight girls who went to the former premier and said, you have to talk about consent in school because it wasn't in the revised curriculum that was originally posted in 2010. Mm -hmm. So um, there are very good lesson plans that were conceived and that would have been implemented had the province not interfered and, and revoked the revised curriculum. So teachers need to have not just curriculum guidelines, but they need lesson plans mm -hmm. because this is not something that comes readily to mind. So with good lesson plans, they can teach children from a very early age uh, about uh, personal space. They can teach them how to be uh, clear in their messages of, of what's okay, what's not okay in terms of, uh, in, in terms of people entering their space. And what I consider to be extremely important is the gradual sexualization of a relationship so that uh, what they call ongoing and affirmative consent, uh, that's, that should be very clear. What I mean is that um, if somebody, if you're kissing somebody and you're happy kissing that person and you don't particularly want to be touched, it's important to be able to say, I'm like loving the kissing, but I don't mm -hmm. want to be touched. Well, you can stretch that all the way along the continuum to BDSM. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I love anal sex, but really I don't want to be tied up. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is something that, again, is very important to teach in the context of um, sexual health uh, education is uh, consent because you consent to one thing doesn't necessarily mean you've consented to something else. Right. No, that's incredibly important. And given our current political landscape, <laughs> yeah, the face is being made. Uh, it seems like a lot of this is in danger. And so what sources of information would you recommend for either, again, parents or even just, say, teenagers or anyone should be consuming to help educate themselves about things to do from consent to sexual health and education? Because it seems like in our school system, there are some topics that are 
possibly going to go away and lots of topics that are probably not going to be covered? Well, they're not going away. Um, in, in Toronto alone, I think it was, no, in Ontario rather, I believe it's 46 school boards that have said, we will give children what they need. We mm. will give teenagers what they need. So it's not going away so fast. Okay. Um, and just Good. because uh, <laughs> you know, just because there was a snitch line established doesn't mean that uh, that that's going to be implemented. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think it is important to seek out uh, sources of information. Uh, it's not like you know, it's not a desert out there. Mm-hmm. There's some really excellent uh, sources of information for parents and for educators. It's just a matter of finding the right place. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, I think what people need to do is to find the sites that are in which they can have confidence, and uh, and that may mean going to a local bookstore to ask, or it might mean um, going to uh, uh, a trusted a trusted sexual health educator, mm-hmm. uh, even um, speaking to the local health unit mm-hmm. to uh, get ideas about uh, what kinds of books or what kind of information is available. One thing I will say is that uh, children and teenagers' exposure to pornography uh, is not the best way for them to learn about consent. That's a bit of an understatement, I guess. But uh-huh. really, um, this is not a good place for them to learn about uh, positive human sexuality. When they're older, they can choose uh, to watch adult entertainment once they have uh, their uh, own sense of their sexual selves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, if you know, if they want to watch whatever erotica or pornography turns them on, fine, you know, fine, you know, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when uh, kids who are ten and eleven are exposed to pornography, uh, pornographic images and content, it's extremely confusing, and the messages are not the ones that we like to convey in the classroom. Right. And I was actually going to get to this topic, so it's great that you brought it up because it seems like. For most kids and teenagers, pornography is probably one of their first or early exposures to sex. If it's not a magazine and in a hydro field, then it's, you know, sneaking downstairs to watch baby blue movies, or maybe that's what we used to do. And now it's the internet because everything is so readily available. So I guess if we're not having these proactive conversations at an early enough age, that will be their first exposure. You know, in the 1980s, a professor, James Check at York University, did some research where he ascertained that for 11 to 17-year-olds, uh, pornography was their sex education. <laughs> I, should, I should say 11 to 17-year-old boys, because at that time, they, it was the magazines and the videos and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you say, kids have uh, access to the internet, which means that they may be seeking uh, pornography or it may just fall in their laps. Right. Uh, or they may have a friend who says, oh, look at this site. Mm-hmm. Or they may be on a screen and somebody says, uh, and somebody sends them something. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's uh, inevitable that they're going to see images that might be frightening and certainly confusing. So when I was doing classes for grade five and six kids, I would always ask them about whether or not they'd had experiences on a screen where uh, they'd seen something that was surprising or that they thought was um, you know, weird or disgusting or scary or whatever, and we would talk about it. Amazing. But I can tell you that a long time ago, in the days of VCRs, <laughs> uh, I remember, and, and videotapes, and you know the, the stuff that kids used to get their hands on. I remember getting a question 
uh, written question because that's how we did it, right? They would write their questions down, we would answer them. Mm -hmm. I remember a kid said, well, can you explain to me what that woman was doing with that horse? <laughs> I'm telling you, this is the <laughs> truth. Oh, so, my gosh. Yeah, 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 you know. Wow, so when parents freak out about, say, education becoming, quote-unquote, more progressive because it includes same-sex education or certain topics or things like that, if those are the questions you've already re been receiving from that age demographic, it, it really puts it in perspective. It's really ridiculous. Of course it is. <laughs> I, I mean, a parent only needs to spend, um, well, they don't need to spend time in the classroom. When I was doing uh, Raising Sexually Healthy Children workshops for parents and then explaining to them what I was going to be teaching in puberty class, I would bring questions from classes that I had just taught, you know, the week before in another right. school. I would say, well, here's a, here's a sampling of what kids want to know, and you know, bug-eyed. And, and then <laughs> I would say to them, you know, how would you answer this question? Right. And then we would practice answering kids' questions because... You know, you have to you have to be ready with your uh, ideas about human sexuality, with the way you want your kid to grow up to be sexually healthy. Mm -hmm. So there's a preparation there, right? And do you think a lot of the opposition and discomfort simply comes from their own upbringing? So, like an adult's own um, views of sexuality or their own uh, experience through puberty, etc. Maybe their upbringing through whatever religion? It, it, it's one of the questions that we ask. It's an exercise that we do in those mm -hmm. workshops. We ask parents about their own backgrounds. And in small groups, they talk about uh, the language they use for genitals, affection and nudity. Um, and uh, we ask them what, uh, how they learned about or whether or not they did learn about same-sex relationships. And uh, if they played doctor, uh, uh, we ask, so we ask them about their backgrounds. And in, in doing so, they're able to recognize how they came to um, understand their own sexuality and their own attitudes towards sexuality. And then when you ask them um, uh, how, what the characteristics are mm -hmm. of a sexually healthy person, and they list the characteristics, and I say, okay, how do you get there? Mm -hmm. And that's when the shift starts. Because they start to recognize, yeah, we didn't use dictionary words for genitals. And, and some parents continue to say, they insist, no, it's too much too soon to teach them the <laughs> dictionary words for genitals. Uh, and, uh, and, and then I tell them the story of a woman who was in a workshop uh, years ago. And she said, yeah, that was my problem. I asked her to explain. And she said, well, in, in my family, we called, uh, the, the, we called the female genitals cookie. And I was being sexually abused at the time. And I tried to tell my teacher, you know, that somebody, you know, wanted to touch my cookie. And the teacher said, well, you know, you have to share. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. So, so I mean, first, you know, first, you, you know, that's, it's kind of <gasps> funny. And then when you realize yeah. that it's not funny. Oh, yeah. shoot. Yeah. So she was being sexually <sighs> abused and she wasn't able to make it stop because she couldn't explain what the problem was so that she would be understood. True story. Wow. Mm -hmm. Jeez. So if that's not a ringing endorsement of us making sure we're arming our kids and youth with the right information, the right terminology, then I don't know what is. 
especially given the amount of media attention to sexual assaults and Me Too and all of this stuff. I mean, it's been going on forever and now it's getting attention, which I suppose is good, but um, I digress. So let's move on to question two. What's your proudest accomplishment? And I'm sure you've had at least a few in your amazing career. Well, the banal answer, of course, is, you know, <laughs> my children. But it's true. You know, I, 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 I mean, I have two adult children who are ethical. They're independent. They're, they're politically aware. They're, they're, uh, they're you know, they're, they're, they're excellent human beings. So, you know, I consider that to be, I mean, I, mean, I can't obviously take a, a sole, sole responsibility. You know, they are who they are. But that, that was huge, you know, to be able to, to participate in that. I'm not surprised. <laughs> um, the, of course, the other one is uh, the translation of Our Bodies Ourselves into French. That was a big deal. Tell me about that. What is that? Uh, Our Bodies Ourselves is a book about uh, women and their bodies, their health, their sexuality, uh, everything, childbirth, diet, uh, same-sex relationships, everything, everything. Um, and it was the first book of its kind. It came out uh, in the United States in maybe 1973, I think. And I was living in uh, France and met someone in a bookstore who introduced me to some women who wanted to translate the book. And by that time, I was already fluent in French. So he introduced me to these women. And over the next few years, we translated this book which has since been translated into dozens of languages, published all around the world. Wow. Yeah. So that was a huge accomplishment, and I was very, very proud of it. And then, of course, the other thing is, is my career at public health. I was, uh, I'm so proud of the work I did there. You know, there's still kids who stop me in the street. Miss, I remember you. Ah. You know, not kids. I want to say kids. You know, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, people in their 30s and 40s. Wow. Okay, yeah. Miss, I remember you. I went to a, a comedy club. Hey, I remember you. It was like, I know, the, the server, right? I remember you. <laughs> I went to do a, I play in a musical group and, and we did a gig and that that evening three separate people came up to me and said, I remember you from, from class. You, you taught wow. me puberty or you were the sex lady or whatever. I was, it was like, it was amazing. Uh -huh. Ah, yeah. move over sex with Sue. We've yeah. got Leva, right? It was, <laughs> it was uh, an opportunity to make a big difference in kids' lives, huge and, uh, you know, over the years, for example, uh, I designed a, a class on sexual abuse. And over the years, m many children came up to me and disclosed because I designed that class. And then they had enough confidence in me that they felt that they could disclose. And so I was able to report and get them the help that they needed. I mean, these, these were huge things. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And so, I mean, it seems like very big shoes to fill, which is a good thing. Um, how confident are you in the people who are now following you in that work? It's a good question. Uh, when I left, when I decided to retire, uh, there were still several of my colleagues there. I had full confidence in them. Um, there's still some people there uh, whom I know and I, and I trust. Um, but, you know, as new people come in, and as things get more and more bureaucratic and as the fight uh, with the, the province gets, you know, increasingly bad, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how they're going to manage. I really don't. Mm. I mean, once upon a time, uh, the former city of Toronto was the most progressive, had the most progressive programs. 
when it came to public health and in particular sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, things change. Right. Exactly. I mean, that's an understatement. And it's going to be a real interesting landscape here in Ontario. And the ride has just begun <laughs> as we move forward. So, I mean, thank you for all the incredible work you've done. And what's the funniest or most interesting encounter you've had with a former uh, person who's attended your class? Well, there's been lots of them. I, I, I can't, the, there's no one that, that uh, comes to mind immediately. It, it mm-hmm. may, it may come to mind a little later. Right. Yeah. You said you've been at comedy clubs, you've been performing and, and you've had all these interactions. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you something. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> you just reminded me. Yeah. I was performing again. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm playing away and uh, somebody comes up to me while I'm playing and says, I remember you. <laughs> while you're playing, they're yeah. literally shouting at that you. That's so funny. <laughs> you were my sex ed teacher. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, that's so funny. Cool. Well, question three is, how do you balance work and life? And now I acknowledge that you are not doing the exact same career. I mean, you're technically retired. But you are still active in a bunch of different projects, different things like that. So feel free to take this question either when you were working full-time or even now. Well, when I was working full-time, especially when the kids were young, I also volunteered in a number of ways. I sat on the uh, the parent council board and on the daycare board, and and I was uh, working in certain solidarity groups. You know, I was busy. Mm -hmm. So I was... uh, going to work and I was volunteering and uh, and I was a maniac. Uh, work-life balance, no. I didn't have it <laughs> uh, and I used to sh- I used to scream at my kids. They don't remember it. I tell them I was a Herod and they say, really? What? What are you talking about? That's great selective memory. <laughs> I'm telling you, it was wonderful. I was, I was, uh, I was a compl- I was just nuts. So um, my work-life balance, nope, didn't have it. And now it's it's it is moot, of course, because uh, I work when work comes my way, and uh, it, it's more a question of making sure that I have something going on every day or, or several days mm-hmm. a week. If I don't have something going on, then uh, I'm starting to climb the walls. Yeah, it's not good. That's great that you stay so active. I mean, oh, how- I have to. It's self defense. Right. Yeah. How old are you now? Seventy. You're seventy. Yeah. You are the most youthful. 70-year-old that I could ever even imagine because you're so active, you're so vocal and so intelligent, so with it, and so we'll please continue with all the great things you're doing. Don't stop. Yeah. (laughs) Keep saying nice things about me. (laughs) Amazing. All right. Question four. Can you tell us about a difficult moment in your life? There were a few. Now, I have to say that uh, I've been an extraordinarily lucky person. Mm-hmm. I've had a wonderful life. Um, I traveled. I, um, I, I saw so much. I learned so much. I've, been, I, I've had two healthy children. I've, I've been extremely lucky. The hard things, the difficult moments were um, uh, separating from my husband after 35 years of marriage. Wow. That was very hard. Um, Losing uh, him, uh, he, he remarried. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he got cancer um, and he was in the hospital, uh, I had to play um, 
a kind of a, a kind of a mother role to mm -hmm. his wife, who uh, is uh, uh, considerably young, considerably younger, and also um, she she's not from uh, Canada, and it made it very difficult for her to advocate for him. And she needed a tremendous amount of support. She didn't have any family here, so I I was in the situation where I had to support her, and that was really difficult. And his, his dying was very difficult, extremely difficult. Wow. When I lost my sister, your grandmother, mm -hmm. um, that was a horrendous time in my life. I loved her very much. I was very close to her. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the, um, the situation in the hospital was just, it was so, it was so terrible. Mm -hmm. It didn't seem to matter how much I tried to advocate on her behalf. I could not... I couldn't get her the help that she needed, and it was just, it was horrendous. It was absolutely horrendous. So those were some of the really difficult moments in my life. Yeah, And, you know, it's say. nothing compared to what other people live through. When I say yeah, I've had a very lucky life, you know, mm -hmm. people, yeah, of course, people have losses, we have losses, but those were, the, those were the hard ones for me. Of course, and understandably so, and thank you for being so candid with that. That's, that's never, it's not supposed to be an easy question, but it's, uh, it's always appreciated when people answer so authentically. Um, you mentioned patient advocacy a couple of times in that and in, in both situations. Since many of us will be faced with those situations where a loved one, someone we know, someone we care about, will be perhaps unable to make certain decisions, uh, or at least clearly, what is some advice you can provide to people to help advocate on behalf of that loved one in a hospital? Well, there are patient advocacy groups, and okay. even in hospitals, there is a, supposed to be a person who is a patient advocate. Sure. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, so that's supposed to happen. Um, it is important to have as much information as possible about the person's uh, illness or disability, uh, it, it's it's very important to inform oneself. So, for example, going to uh, see the doctor with somebody who needs that support, uh, for example, with your grandma, with my sister. Mm -hmm. um, I remember going to the doctor and taking notes, and then I would type up the notes and send, them, send her an email with all the notes so that she would be able to review everything that was said during that, during the appointment, because... Are you sending the notes... To, to your sister or to the doctor? To my sister. To your sister, right. Yeah, got it. Because I, uh, be she, she would ask some questions, the doctor mm -hmm. would answer, and I would take notes because you, it's very difficult to be your own advocate mm -hmm. and take notes, ask questions, and all of those things. So right. I was her support person at times during, mm -hmm. those, during those kinds of uh, interviews. The other thing, too, is um, because uh, of my work, I, I also was a women's health advocate for many years and participated in groups uh, of, uh, advocating for women's health. So mm -hmm. again, it's something that is very important to me. But you know, it's remarkable how you how powerless you feel when you're in a hospital mm -hmm. and it doesn't. If there's no doctor to sign an order for pain meds, mm -hmm. if there is no doctor, there is not a thing you can do about it. It right. doesn't matter how much you holler, there's no doctor, there are no pain meds. Mm -hmm. And that was very hard. Right. And one thing I admired, especially when I was present, 
during those days when my grandmother was in the hospital is how well you were able to actually communicate with her directly. And the reason why I say that is when we see someone that we love decline to a point where it's very difficult for them to respond or communicate, there can be this feeling of awkwardness or a discomfort being able to have the right kind of tonality or right kind of conversations. Is there any additional insight or advice that you could provide to, again, say family members or visitors or people whom are visiting people who are ill in hospital? Because for me, I, again, have been very fortunate to not have to do that very often. And so that's why for me, it's, it's very foreign and I'm sure for others too. Yes, of course it is. Um, and I would say that as long as a person has their mental capacity, mm -hmm. they're, the, they're the same person they always were. Right. So your relationship with them has not changed. And so when you're talking to a person with whom you'd, al you'd always talked, mm -hmm. you're talking the same way. Right. It, you know, that, that doesn't change. Um, so it, it, you're talking in a very direct way and a very loving way, and mm -hmm. you're giving them the support that you've always, you've always given them. Right. Obviously, it's completely different when a person has dementia. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other kettle of fish. Right, right. <laughs> Fair enough. Cool. Well, thank you for talking about that openly. Appreciate it. Um, question five is, who or what inspires you the most? There are so many people in the world today that are fighting for what is good and right and just. It never ceases to amaze me. For all of the crap that's going on and all the misery and the Understatement. violence. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, and then you see uh, the kids in Parkland, you know, organizing. And uh, even, when was it, a few days ago, um, Dr. Dennis uh, Mukwege uh, he's, a he's a Congolese gynecologist. He just won the Nobel Prize for repairing damage done to women during war. I mean, mm -hmm. he, 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 when you look at people who, uh, who help despite everything, mm -hmm. you know, who put their lives on the line, who stand up, I mean, this, is, this to me is it's amazing. It never ceases to amaze me how people will put themselves in front of a bulldozer. You know, like that. You know, it's, and the bulldozer is uh, is real as as it is metaphorical. Mm -hmm. Yourself included. Well, you know, I I, uh, I haven't had to, um, you know, be in the front lines in any in any serious way. You know, back in the day, uh, you know, running from the the police on horses and running from Frankel's forces and, you know, all that stuff. Like, yeah, okay, back in the day, but uh, even so. When when was that? What, what, oh. what was... Uh, oh, uh, well, I mean... The, <laughs> I didn't hear about this in one. The, in, the days, in the days of the, the, the war in Vietnam and mm -hmm. Indochina, really, mm -hmm. um, in, there were lots and lots of demonstrations in the street. I remember one on University Avenue when mm -hmm. the, the horses were running us down. Wow. You know, um, but... I could run in those days. Right. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've, I haven't had to. I haven't had to really put myself on the line. But, I mean, people people really do. It's just, it's amazing. Well, one might argue what you're doing, even in your advocacy, even in your education, is quite controversial and is putting yourself in the way of 
severe criticism at times. Yeah, but and criticism isn't the same as it's not the same as barrel of a gun. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, it's more metaphorical in yeah, this yeah. case, but uh, it, it still takes a lot of chutzpah to do. So. It's a little chutzpah. I got chutzpah. You do. You've, you have chutzpah in droves. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question six. What is the most adventurous thing you have ever done? Uh, once again, back in the day, uh, <laughs> back in hippie days, uh, late 60s. Were um, you a hippie? Well, not really. You okay. know, uh, some of the trappings, uh, certainly the, the traveling, you know, was uh, was a very uh, hip thing to do. <laughs> and um, probably the, the, that, that was the first most adventurous thing I'd ever done. Um, we uh, had decided we were going to travel for a year. So this was back in 69, I think. Uh, and uh, because I, I'd grown up in such a closed uh, atmosphere I, where I, I wasn't in the least bit independent, I really didn't know how to do anything but myself. And I went, you know, from my, from my parents' home to, to live with my husband. I was 19 when I got married. Mm -hmm. so, so we were traveling and we decided uh, when we were in Amsterdam that um, he was going to go one way and I was going to go in another way. And Ooh. then we were going to meet in Ibiza. Wow. Yeah. So, wow. I know. So, <laughs> See you later. I know. So, uh, you know, off I went, stuck out my Jeez. thumb and, uh, yeah, and traveled, you know, through Europe and down through Spain and had remarkable adventures all the way through. Uh, and then finally ended up in Barcelona where I had to uh, spend the night uh, to get on a boat to go to, um, to Ibiza. And there was a bullfight in town uh, and the, all the hotels were full. The hostels were full, so I finally found a place, and uh, it was a miserable little place, and, and I noticed that there were men banging on the door during the night. In the morning, I got up, and and uh, I was talking to somebody, and, and, and I said, what's going on here? You know, there were men banging on my door. And she said, yeah, they, yeah they, there's, there's uh, prostitutes working here. I thought, oh, 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 I, I see. Okay. Yeah. So, so that was that was a big adventure and Great. you know traveling in West Africa it was it was it was amazing. You know, I, when I, when I say I, I'm a really lucky person, I had amazing experiences. Wow, that's so fun. It was. I would never think to say, "Hey, you go one way, I'll go the other. We'll meet up here." That that's amazing. Who does that? That's so great. Whose idea was that? I don't know. We came up with it together somehow. Wow. Yeah. That was cool. That's so fun. That is really adventurous. Amazing. All right. So question seven, what do you attribute your success to? Uh, I think that because I was very passionate about feminism and about uh, women's health and about sexual health, mm -hmm. uh, I, I it informed the way that I... Uh, delivered the information and informed the way that I uh, carried myself when I was talking to people. Also, uh, when I was a, a kid and, and through high school and university, I liked to act. And uh, I, I found that I had a good uh, comedic sense mm. in the classroom and, with, uh, and doing workshops. So I could make people laugh. Uh, and which would relax them. Yeah. And then the, then I could send the message on through. Okay. So, so I had some skills that uh, really worked very well in those situations. That's amazing. I mean, what better way to be able to put people at ease than to make them laugh if they're about to talk about dicks? It's great. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you mentioned 
how passionate you are about feminism, which is incredible. Um, I'm curious to understand your view on how feminism has evolved over the past few decades and where you see it right now, where you see it evolving to. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that because we see how it's reflected. We see how people are organizing through social media. We see how people are taking to the streets and how it's becoming very branded with, you know, the pink pussy hats and stuff like that. But curious, since obviously you've been with us for a while, just how you've seen that evolution and moving forward. I came to the women's liberation movement, as it was mm-hmm. known, in 1968. Mm. And in in those days, uh, it was um, middle class white women who were organizing, doing consciousness raising, and so on, mm-hmm. and uh, leading the fight for uh, choice um, and and other issues that were identified. Over time. Um, Black women and women of color were saying, what about us? Mm -hmm. And over time, uh, poor women were saying, what about us? And over time, um, uh, women with disabilities were saying, what about us? Mm -hmm. So those were some, so those things, those, those were some of the reasons why, uh, why feminism was evolving and or the way it was evolving in North America. And so, you know, when people say, well, you know, uh, women have made great strides, a glass mm-hmm. ceiling, you know, breaking through and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. So then you look at, then you look at women's status internationally, and you see that in countries that are at war, the reason why this doctor is repairing these women is because rape has always been used as a weapon of war. Mm-hmm. And so these women are raped and, and, uh, and uh, like ripped in two mm-hmm. uh, and, and forced into sexual slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, women are burned alive. Uh, in, in, in so many countries around the world, when you compare the status of women, it, it, it's, it's in some ways reflective of the social status of those women because the educated women may or may not you know, be doing better than their sisters who are living in poverty. But we can't easily say, you know, okay, here's the evolution of feminism. Feminism is evolving differently in every part of the world. Mm -hmm. I think that what we all understand is that things can't get better unless everyone's involved. And even in terms of economics in developing countries, you know, finally... Uh, funders, or at least some funders, understand that you know if you don't involve the women, you're not going to make a change. Mm-hmm. If you don't help women have control of their bodies and the number of children that they have, you're not going to be able to make a change. Mm-hmm. So I think that it, I mean it's a it's the answer is very broad, and you have to look at you have to look at it uh, from an international perspective. Mm-hmm. And so, what can we do in privileged nations to help enact positive change? in some of these other parts of the world? We cannot be paternalistic and, uh, and uh, recolonize. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember uh, there was a conference, there was a, an international women's conference that was, uh, I think it might have been in the 70s, mm-hmm. and uh, they were talking about um, what they called a, a Female. Some women called it female circumcision. Some called it female genital mutilation. Some called it uh, cutting. 
Right. And um, there were some women in, from the countries in, in which uh, these practices existed that said, don't tell us to eradicate these practices. We will take care of our own business. And basically they were saying, but oh, out. Right. Yeah. So, it, you know, people have to organize around their own oppression. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, in some ways, international agencies have, uh, have, have, have given support, but international agencies have also undercut and undermined mm -hmm. in some countries um, progress that might have been made. By, for example, mm -hmm. uh, uh, distributing um, an IUD called the Dalcon Shield uh, in countries after it had been banned in North America because 17 women's 17 women died of sepsis. Wow. Yeah. So then, okay, uh, well, we can't use it in North America anymore. Well, let's just dump it on the developing world. Mm -hmm. Jeez. Oh, yeah. It's almost like a twisted version of the white savior complex, but a backhanded version. Well, I mean, if that's it was, what they're doing. It was based Jeez. on, it was based on profit. Wow. Or, you know, okay, let's distribute Depo-Provera uh, in such and such a country um, mm -hmm. where you couldn't possibly have the follow-up regarding the side effects. Mm -hmm. Or let's insert IUDs willy-nilly where, there's, again, there's no, there's no possibility of having follow-up for the women who, are, who reject it, uh, you know, or, or, or have, who have profuse bleeding. Mm -hmm. just, look, it, it all comes down to profit, Right. So, uh, like, well, yeah, I mean, that, unfortunately, yeah, 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 we are commodities. Great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, is there anything or what have you seen interna internationally, uh, that is good, that is worth mentioning progress that you're seeing outside of North America that would make us feel great that is happening in their own societies that we should be proud of, we should be inspired by, we should be encouraged by? We can be inspired by the women uh, who have been able to um, stop the practice of female cutting, female genital cutting in their countries. Mm -hmm. And again, it starts small. It sometimes it starts in one village. You'll have uh, some of the midwives who who say, you know, we, we shouldn't do this anymore, not because it's wrong and bad, but because, you know, your women are dying mm -hmm. or they're not able to have more children. So, you know, let's get the local religious leader on side here. So, you know, those those small victories are, are, are enormous mm -hmm. and, and very profound. And my understanding of the female genital mutilation is that it's cultural, or religious in significance, is it's that cultural. right? cultural. Cultural, okay. Yes, because, uh, for example, Islam does not uh, anywhere in the Quran mm -hmm. say you have to do this. Mm. Um, and there are some Muslim countries, there are lots of Muslim countries where it's not practiced. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are some, uh, uh, there are some, I'm <laughs> thinking about a, a paper I wrote <laughs> <laughs> about, uh, about this issue where uh, they were comparing uh, the surgeries done on intersex children. Okay. Yeah. The, the forced uh, cutting, essentially. Right. You know, the, the child's uh, ability to consent um, to some of the practices in, in, in other countries. Uh, it, it was, um, it's, I mean, it, it's interesting, you know, because oftentimes uh, in the West in particular, you know, we say, you know, the, well, these barbaric practices, and, you know, we don't look at 
practices that uh, we have had in North America and Europe, right. um, which, uh, if not exactly the same, certainly have some similarities. Yeah, that's very interesting that you mentioned that. And uh, for definition's sake, intersex, that's when a child is born with both pairs of genitalia or, or, or with... Or genitals that are not obviously uh, uh, male or female. Right. So um, a person who is intersex um, may, for example, uh, have... Uh, a, a very uh, a small penis and an opening in what looks like the scrotum mm-hmm. um, or may have a, a very large clitoris. Um, it, 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 you know, it, it may be anomal- anomalous in some way. Sure. So in the, there, there was, the, the common medical wisdom was, well, you need to <laughs> operate so that, you know, you're going to assign a sex to this child. You have to assign sure. a sex to the child. But uh, it didn't work. You know, because gender, as we all know, is something that's interior to oneself. Mm -hmm. And so there were plenty of examples of uh, kids who, uh, although they were assigned a certain sex, later on they they came out to themselves as the gender they felt they were. Right. Exactly. And and that, I'm sure, comes with a, a lot of trauma and a lot of difficulty through that process, especially if it's not accepted by their family and their culture. So... In that instance, considering this is something that probably happens all the time and just isn't talked about very widely, what would be the best way to approach that situation? What kind of advice would you recommend to a parent? The the contemporary wisdom is that you leave the genitals alone, that you wait until the child develops their sense of who they are in terms of gender. Mm -hmm. And if they later on in life wanted to make some changes to their genitals, they could do that. Mm. The thing is that um, when these these, um, surgeries are done, uh, they often have really deleterious effects on uh, on, on the ability to um, have pleasure. Mm. Uh, And the other thing is that uh, I remember again in this, this article, they were talking uh, uh, an article that I that I read to inform me about the one that I wrote. Anyway, uh, they were they were they were saying, you know, well, you know, if the clitoris is this big but not that big, therefore uh, it should be cut back, you know, because a clitoris shouldn't be too big. Oh, you know, no, that's the thing. I mean, they had these they had these bizarre ideas about. Um, you know what 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 genitals should look like depending on you know um, you know a, a, a male should have a penis of a certain size anyway it's just uh, yeah it's <laughs> and we wonder why we're so screwed up oh yeah <laughs> jeez okay cool that's really great information I, I certainly learned a lot um, and you were mentioning birth control before uh, in developing areas of examples of birth control that have been problematic. Um, Curious if there's any birth control that's new, that's really exciting to you, that you're understanding more about, anything that you've heard about that is really problematic, that we shouldn't be entertaining, that is trying to be marketed? Oh, I'd have to go back to another article that I wrote. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is not in my head. Um, I I looked at some what were considered to be newer methods of birth control, and uh-huh. then kind of went through them one by one to say, well, this doesn't look so good, and you know, this isn't really so different from whatever, whatever. Um, there are a couple of 
things that need to be discussed with anybody who is uh, looking to use some method of birth control. Mm -hmm. You have to look at their life situation. Do they have one partner? Do they have several partners? You have to look at their age. You have to look at any underlying health issues, especially if they're considering a hormonal method of contraception. You have to um, talk with them about whether or not they can afford the method that they're looking at, uh, at, at whether or not their lifestyle permits them to use it. For example, when I was working in the sexual health clinic, um, if I had somebody who wanted to use birth control pills but she was bulimic, then I would have to discuss that with her. Because right, know, right, you know, right. Like, right. <laughs> Took me a second. I was yeah. like, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, when, 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 <laughs> if you take your pill, like, would that be before or after you puke? Like, you know, yeah. you have to think about that. Or if a woman was uh, a practicing Muslim and uh, she wanted to use Depo Provera, I, I would have to tell her, you know, you're going to have fairly chaotic bleeding uh, for the first several months. That's that's a, that's a real likelihood, which would interfere with her ability to have sexual relations with her partner. Mm. So yeah. Um, some methods of birth control, any method of birth control, uh, it's, it's a, a woman needs to be able to give informed consent. Mm -hmm. And that means that the person who's presenting the method to her has to be able to say, okay, this is um, what it is, this is what's in it, this is how it works, this is how you use it, these are the side effects and these are the risks. Mm -hmm. And the professional talking to her needs to be very upfront about the risks and up to date about the risks. Mm. So for example, when it comes to hormonal contraception, um, and they look at the third, what they call the third generation or fourth generation of uh, oral contraceptives, uh, the, some of the um, hormones that are used have a higher risk of blood clots than the ones from the earlier generations, like say the second generation. Oh, really? And, yeah. And and uh, the the patch contains more uh, hormone than, for example, the birth control pill. Um, it, it, so, and uh, uh, NuvaRing, as I recall, uh, uses the. Uh, the, the progestin, don't ask me, I shouldn't really be saying this out loud because I've thought about it in a while. But I mean, there's a... Double check, double, yeah, double check, check double the check. facts. Yeah. Um, the, it uses uh, one of the um, uh, more contemporary versions uh, and, and it has a higher risk of blood clots. I mean, you have to talk to a woman about this and, and if she says, um, okay, this is, this is what I want to use. Okay, so just so you're clear, you can expect these side effects... And if you have any of these symptoms in these first three months, you know, before you come back, right. you know, um, these are the danger signs and you have to know what the danger signs are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, informed consent is critical. So it seems like if by chance you are with a practitioner who isn't proactively offering this information as they should, that we ask a lot of these great questions to them explicitly. Now, it's just too bad that there aren't more options for men. That's the whole other conversation, but just yeah, to throw well, it out there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like condoms, so I don't use yeah. them. Well, you know, what is there? Condoms of vasectomy and, right. with, and withdrawal. Yeah. That's it. We all know how effective that is. <laughs> withdrawal can be a very effective method of birth control, in mm -hmm. particular, mm. if a woman is aware of her fertility cycle. Okay. Yeah, so if, I thought this was a myth. I didn't realize it was no. actually that effective. Yes, it is. Okay. Yes, and I mean, there are many couples that for years use withdrawal because 
he learns uh, he learns uh, the point of no return, they call it, you know, which is you know just before he comes. Um, so he recognizes it and pulls out. Right. Um, and also, uh, if she's aware of her, uh, her 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 fertility cycle, and she you know if there's a miss, and there's a miss at the time when she has her stretchy, stringy, clear mucus, right. okay, then she knows like oh I think I better consider Plan B. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And. Thinking about something like a plan B, are there any additional options or is that still all that's out there? I mean, like touch wood, I I haven't had to go there myself, but it is because I've understood it to sometimes really wreak havoc on you. I'm sure everyone is a little bit different. Sometimes they don't have any. No, no, she's shaking her head. She's (laughs) she's like, no, you're good. In the old days. In the old days. (laughs) um, When uh, they were using a double dose of birth control pills uh, Mm. to use as emergency contraception, Mm. yeah, that was brutal. It was totally brutal, and women would puke all over the place. Um, But Plan B, uh, very limited side effects. Most Mm. women will take Plan B and and, uh, nothing. They'll have no side effects at all. Um, And uh, there's another one called Norlevo, I believe. There's also the... um, uh, also, the copper IUD can be used as emergency contraception, oh. so it can be inserted um, several days after uh, the miss, after the accident. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the accident. Yes. Uh, so there, I mean, there are a few options in terms of emergency contraception. That's great to know. And best places to try to get emergency contraception. Well, in uh, in Canada, you can get it over the counter. Great. Yeah. Boom. Yay, Canada. <laughs> Wonderful. I have lots of questions. Um, I'm going to I'm going to ask one more follow up uh, about sexual health, just because I, I feel like I'm I'm a kid in a candy store. There's so much to ask, and I think there's a lot to learn from this. But uh, especially for women of an older generation. What should they keep in mind for fulfilling healthy sexual relationships? And not just women, it could be women and men. Well, there are a couple of, there, there are a couple of um, big questions. Mm-hmm. Um, most people, when they talk about uh, seniors and sex, the first thing they think about is uh, competency. I don't talk, I'm not talking about... Um, competency in terms of consent, although that's another issue which we can talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but they think in terms of, um, well, you know, women get dry and the vaginal walls get thin and men have a hard time holding erections and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Like that tends to be most of the discussion. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the discussions that I've raised, again, I've written about it several times, uh, is the issue of sexually transmitted infections. Mm-hmm. Because um, seniors uh, who are frisky um, have a tendency to, uh, you know, once they, they've, you know, they've, they've lost a partner and then they're back on the scene, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's like, well, it's exciting to talk about a kid in a candy shop. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they're the last thing on their minds. Good grandma. Yeah. The last thing on their minds would be um, having a conversation about protection, about safer sex. Mm-hmm. For one thing, uh, my generation wouldn't have discussed it. You know, we wouldn't have discussed safer sex. It just wasn't an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even if it is an issue, uh, many people have difficulty having the talk 
Um, you know, we should get tested, I'll get tested, we'll both get tested, and then we'll use condoms or we won't use condoms or whatever, whatever. You know, or some barrier protection depending on what, what the plan is. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's, there's that. Um, and then there's also, uh, there's also the issue of uh, how you feel about how you look. Um, you know, so you, you may find that, okay, you're looking at yourself and thinking, how could I possibly take off my clothes in front of another person again? You know, <laughs> how could I do this? Um, the answer is they're probably not looking so great themselves, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's, yeah. that's fair. That yeah, is so, fair. So there's, the, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot. It's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a big picture. And uh, anybody who wants to read more about uh, um, this stuff that I've read, written about many times, they can go to my WordPress page or they can go to Huffington Post. I've written a whole bunch of stuff about sen- seniors and sex there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, lots of links. Mm, sounds good. And well, you'll have an opportunity to promote them all uh, ad nauseum in uh, just a moment. But that's really great to know because I've read a bunch of articles and they pop up on social media as well from time to time about a lot of STIs and STDs in especially retirement communities. And so that's why I was curious to to ask if that was it or if oh, there was yeah. other things. But I wouldn't have even considered the body image thing. But that's true. When you know, I, I like to think when I'm in that generation, I'm going to be extra confident, not really care. I'm going to be, I'm going to be, you know, that woman wearing all of the funkiest clothes, bright lipstick, all the stuff. I mean, also I kind of want to be you when I grow up as well. So there's a lot to channel. Yeah. What she <laughs> but, really means is I'm not wearing lipstick. <laughs> Don't worry. I wear the lipstick for the both of us. We're good. <laughs> but still, I think that's a very real thing. I mean, what bigger fear is there for a lot of people in general, uh, but especially women, than aging? Dun dun dun. Right? Yeah, and and it's not just the looks; it's the way the body functions. And right, the way the right. body functions is not just a question of whether or not you can still lubricate. Right. Uh, you get uh, stiff. You get yep. sore. You get arthritis. You have you have a disability. You have to find a way to communicate with your partner about okay, this feels good, but in this but in this position, it kind of hurts. Can we change positions? Right. And in order to do that, you have to be able to talk. I mean, right. we didn't learn how to talk. About sex, during mm-hmm. sex, before, during, after, no. Mm-hmm. And that's a skill that has to be developed. Right. So we should be starting now is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> good, good. All right. Question eight. What item or items could you never live without? Yeah, I was thinking about that. Uh, it's funny. Uh, listening to the radio tonight, they were talking about the... Um, the hurricane in Florida and you know once again people are saying my house my everything my stuff my uh, my memories all gone all gone all gone but you know most of the time you hear people uh, in those situations and they say well but we're still alive we have each other or you know that you hear that kind of talk mm-hmm. so yeah I mean people can live without a lot you know but you, you you look at you look around the world and and uh and the, the the mudslides and the tornadoes in the you know in these days of climate change the 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 devastation you know what can people live without it's not living it's surviving what can mm-hmm. you th- they survive right right so you know could I could I live without uh, this ring that was given to me in Morocco in 1969 could I live without uh, my sister's engagement ring could I live without them yes I could would I miss them yes I would mm-hmm. uh, can you can you live without the, the the child, you know, your child? Can you live without your child? 
Yeah, you can lose a child and 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 live, but it's not it's not living. You know, you're you're not living. You're you're surviving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I. I I could live without sunshine. I'd rather not. I could I could live without music. I'd rather not. I could live without dancing. I probably will not dance until the day I die, but it would be a loss. So these are losses, right? Mm-hmm. So is there anything you can't live without? I I doubt it. Wow, that is one hell of an answer. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I think that is a very sobering thought. Um, technically, we can survive and live without pretty much anything, but is that really living? I'm going to be thinking about that tonight. Damn. (laughs) Wow. All right. So moving on to question nine, is there anything you'd like to promote? Yeah, I want to promote the idea that you've got to keep on keeping on. You have to keep fighting for what's right, you can't stop ever. You know, I was thinking, okay, I'm a 68, 69, I'm turning 70, so maybe, yeah, well, I don't have to go to demonstrations anymore and so on. Are you kidding me? You know, I just, just this past year, I can't even count the number of demonstrations I've been to. You know, I see other women, you know, gray hairs like me, and they're, there they are, and, you know, they're carrying their sign, and I still have to protest the same old shit all over again. It's you. I want to promote people standing up for what's right. That's that's a huge deal, and in particular, right now in Ontario, the uh, the sex curriculum, the sex ed curriculum, mm-hmm. which um, which is so critically important to uh, to children's well being. Mm-hmm. Uh, Got to keep fighting for that. Got to keep fighting the provincial government. Every time they, they 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 claw back people's rights, you have to stand up and say no. Absolutely, you are completely right. Why? Oh, thank you. <laughs> You're like check mark. Yes. Um, are there any organizations whom you would like to p- promote or suggest we perhaps donate dollars to, donate time to? They're doing really great work, either in regards to some of those issues that are maybe based in Ontario, or maybe other ones that are a little bit larger, smaller. Take it as you will. Gee. I hadn't thought about that. Um, you can take a minute. Well, I know I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, we're in the middle of a municipal election, and for the first time I, I donated to uh, um, an organization that's, uh, that's, that's working for a number of candidates to defeat really bad candidates, gave them money, and gave a candidate money uh, who's not even in my ward, Plus my own candidate in my ward, so you know it's mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, as as the requests for money come in, I tend to give to grassroots organizations, mm-hmm. so shelters and street nurses and housing and and food. Uh, you know, there's those are the kinds of donations that I make. But there are some there are wonderful foundations like the Stephen Lewis Foundation. Uh, and uh, I mean, I I think that if people are looking for a place where they know they can they can trust where they're putting their money and look at the amazing work that's being done uh, regarding HIV/AIDS, mm-hmm. uh, in particular particularly in the uh, African subcontinent. Um, that would be that would be one. Great of many. Great, and. Uh, and your you mentioned that you have a website and you 
any any particular URL? Yeah, I don't have a website. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a professional Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, it, it has the name of my little business, which you know, I'm, not, I'm not doing much these days. <laughs> Libra Spring Sexual Health Education and Consulting Services, is that's me. Um, but uh, I do have a WordPress page. So WordPress. It's, so mm-hmm. it's, yeah, WordPress, uh, Libra Spring, that'll pop up. And I have written a number of articles for Huffington Post, so HuffPost, Libra Spring, and you'll find some articles there as well. Amazing. Thank you so much for that. And uh, to round things off, question 10, what is a lesson you learned the hard way that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I thought about that. And what immediately sprang to mind was, you can't change people, give it up. (laughs) I like that. That's amazing. You know, you can, you can, Talk about behaviors that you don't like. I don't like it when, you know, you do this or I feel bad when blah, 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 whatever. You know, so it's possible that people will will change the, their behaviors in terms of the way that they deal with you. Mm-hmm. But really, you know, people fundamentally, they are the way they are. And unless they want to make change, they want to continually improve themselves, you know, you, you, you can't make them do it. So, you know, you either accept them for the way they are or you're not with them. Right. Like, forget about it. And did this advice primarily come from relationships that you've been in or observed or from other areas of your life? No, from relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's great advice. I uh, was in a previous relationship where I was with a partner who had certain patterns of behavior and we'd have serious conversation after serious conversation and ultimately blow-ups that would result. And that person never felt it within themselves to either seek the assistance or do the work needed in order to evolve. And it just got to a point where we had to pull the plug because it wasn't healthy anymore, even though it was comfortable. So I think that's an incredible lesson to end on. So thank you so much, Liba. You are a true badass and a trailblazer and certainly an inspiration for all of us that are walking in your footsteps. Thank you very much for inviting me. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Find us on Facebook at Legit Lady Podcast. That's L-E-G-I-T-L-A-D-Y Podcast. And on Instagram at Legit Lady Podcast. On Twitter at Legit Lady Pod. That's Legit Lady P-O-D. And please rate and comment on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you love what you hear, share it broadly and proudly. Thanks, everyone.